Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about coffee. Is it nature's perfect food? The answer may be in our first pod nugget, the health benefits of coffee. We then turn to the use of dummies for testing roller coasters. We reminisce about an important art movement of the 50s, paint by numbers. We visit a California house whose yard is either a roadside attraction or an eyesore. And we answer the important question, how do rock stars do their laundry? In the Old Dogs interview, we introduce you to Don Phelan, former ad man, successful real estate broker, avid cyclist, and a pretty darn good novelist. Stay with us. Jim, I may regret this, but what's on your mind? Coffee. Okay, tell me some more. Coffee is on my mind this morning, and I think it's because I'm drinking some. Same here. That's how I greet my mornings. How many cups does it take you to get functional in the morning? Oh, usually one, but the cup is about a half gallon. I see. Okay. I will get through a pot a day. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, for years we've been told that it's very bad for you, that not only should you not drink a pot, you should probably not drink more than one cup. And um, I resent that, frankly, because uh, coffee is what powers my engine. It's the only legalized drug I have in my system every day. And I tell you what, you know, if I don't get my coffee, I'll get a headache. Really? Yeah. Well, um, isn't that what they say coffee does? (laughs) Well, whatever it is, I enjoy the taste of coffee. I don't like those Starbucks frou-frou drinks, uh, you know, multi-fruity, half cream and half sugar. I just like, I like my coffee black. I like the taste of it. And people go, what? You like the taste of coffee? Well, yeah. And I say, you don't? Then why do you drink it? Because it tastes like cream and sugar. And uh, yeah, our our first pod nugget actually extols the health benefits of coffee. And honestly, even without those, I I would enjoy my coffee every single day. Well, I would say there are different definitions of health. I mean, the health benefit to me is that I'm awake. That's a health benefit, wouldn't you say? And sometimes you're awake into the night, I imagine. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. Over the years, coffee has been good for you. Coffee's been bad for you. Drink it in moderation. You can have as much as you want. I mean, it depends, I guess, on who's funding the study, what the results Maybe so. might be. Uh-huh. But I'm looking forward to that first pod nugget and see what health benefits are going to come our way. Well, let's get to it then. The average American adult drinks at least three cups of coffee a day. In addition to jump-starting your morning, coffee has some actual health benefits. This pod nugget comes to us from the Everyday Einstein website. Drinking four to five cups of coffee a day cuts the risk of developing Parkinson's disease in half. It can also lessen the symptoms if you already have the disease. If you drink more than three cups a day, you could reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes by up to 50%. One cup of coffee a day can lower the risk of liver damage by 20%. Multiple studies have linked coffee drinking to a reduced risk of heart disease. Coffee is also a great source of antioxidants, which helps our bodies fight cell damage. Ah, but you can abuse a good thing. Oh, come on. All of us coffee drinkers know that 
excess consumption leads to an increased heart rate and interferes with sleep. The recommended consumption is three to five cups a day. And there's another caution. The health benefits depend on what you are putting into your coffee. That makes sense. A cup of black coffee is only a couple of calories. Some of those fancy Starbucks drinks are over 500 calories and contain staggering amounts of sugar and fat. The operators of a New Jersey Shore amusement park tested a roller coaster ride and the test was not very reassuring. This item comes to us from the Houston Chronicle for May 7th, 2019. The test involved a pair of Waterfield test dummies seated during a test run. The test had its uh, ups and downs. Har har. The up part was the dummies flew out of the roller coaster, and the down part <laughs> is that the dummies landed on the roof of an adjacent hotel, damaging the building's shingles. The operators blamed the failure on a water leak in the dummies that allowed them to slither under the lap bar. They assured customers that it couldn't possibly happen to human riders, unless they had drunk an enormous amount of water. In fairness, the coaster has run problem-free since the mishap, and the ride is tested daily for two hours. Personally, I think you'd have to be a dummy to get on that roller coaster. I'll go along with that. Dan Robbins died at the age of 92 near the end of March 2019. Now, if the name doesn't sound familiar, here's a hint. He was the most exhibited artist in the world. This nugget comes to us from the New York Times, dated April 5th, 2019. Dan Robbins was the illustrator who helped conceive what has become known as Paint by Numbers. He copied the idea from Leonardo da Vinci, who numbered background objects in his paintings and had apprentices fill in the appropriate color. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that until we had to say it. Robbins created all the original art for Craftmaster, which unfortunately didn't have a patent on the process, so the market was soon flooded with imitators. In 1955, sales for Paint by Number hit 20 million kits, with Craftmaster selling about 12 million. Robbins had no pretensions about his fill-in-the-blank craft projects. He said, I never claimed Paint by Numbers is art, but it is the experience of art, and it brings that experience to the individual who would normally not pick up a brush. Okay, and that experience could have been bad if you can't stay within the line. I had a problem with that. Paul, that's the sign of a creative thinker. Oh, yeah. oh I'll take that. The house is striking. A series of interconnecting cement mounds and silos designed by architect William Nicholson in 1976. But a new owner added lawn ornaments, which brought a lawsuit from her neighbors. This item comes from the Houston Chronicle of April 6, 2019. The house was purchased in 2017 by Florence Fang, a prominent philanthropist in her 80s. She painted the bulbous house red and purple and installed an homage to the Flintstones in the yard. Statues of Barney, Betty, Fred, and Wilma are in the front. Colorful mushroom sculptures are in the front and back, along with aliens and other oddities. Let's just say the yard is full of ornaments. The house is in a posh San Francisco suburb called Hillsborough. Depending on your point of view, the yard is whimsical and smile-worthy, or it is an eyesore. City officials filed a lawsuit in state court to get her to remove the yard bric-a-brac, which were installed without a permit. 
Mrs. Fang doesn't even live in the house. She uses it for entertainment. But she has the resources for a prolonged court fight. Stay tuned. Will it be yabba-dabba-doo or yabba-dabba-don't? And what's this homage stuff? That's the way you pronounce it. Homage. You're not buying that, hey? Maybe. Okay, Jim, here's a practical question. When a rock group is on tour, how do they handle their dirty laundry? Do you think Mick Jagger looks for an all-night laundromat after a sweaty concert? No. Of course not. They call on specialists for tour laundry. That's right, laundry specialists. This pod nugget comes to us from the New York Times dated January 26, 2019. Thirty years ago, most tour laundry was done quickly between tour stops at a local laundromat, probably by a roadie, not Mick Jagger. In the early 80s, Hans-Jürgen Topf, whose parents owned a laundry, started hanging out at concert venues in Germany, offering to wash the production clothes for touring rock bands. He did such a good job, he was invited to join groups on tour. So he bought a truck, added two washers and dryers, and drove alongside touring bands. His company, Rock and Roll Laundry, has grown over the years. He no longer works alone. He provides the laundry equipment and staff for touring productions. His clients have included Madonna, U2, Jay-Z, Pink, Beyonce, Janet Jackson, and Cirque du Soleil. On some tours, it can take up to 20 hours a day to do the laundry. So the laundry crew often misses the concerts and socializing to get their work done. After a show, the machines go into special travel cases, and they're loaded on trucks to move to the next location, along with the other tour equipment. Topf who is now in his 60s, prefers to stay in Germany these days. But his son, Achim, is very much involved with the business. It looks like there will be another generation of clean tour clothes for rock bands. As Toff put it, this is my life. The artists live their life, and I live my laundry life. Sounds like a soap opera to me, Paul. Oh, that was bad. Don Phelan's first career was in advertising as an account executive for several Michigan ad agencies, including J. Walter Thompson. A Grand Rapids area native, Don returned home at first to accept a job at a local ad agency, but the housing market eventually lured him into real estate, where he established himself as a very successful agent, finally becoming managing broker of a 475-agent real estate company. But that wasn't the end. Don got the writer's bug when he published a book about selling real estate. This led to two novels with more on the way. Add to that Don's passion for bicycling, and you have a picture of an old dog who is constantly on the lookout for new tricks. Don, uh, you've certainly had a checkered career, and let's go back to the first checker move. Uh, you and Jim uh, go back to the golden age of advertising when you uh, wrote copy with stone implements. You got any comments on how the ad business has changed? Gosh, it has changed. And when you refer to it as as the golden age of advertising, I would say uh, that that's kind of my perception, too, that that there was that moment of uh, the uh, Don Draper, Mad Men sort of thing. Uh, Jim and I were kind of on the tail end of that, uh, but we certainly saw plenty of it. And it did change dramatically, and I think that in that era... There was a lot of uh, interaction with the people that you worked with, you know, uh, collaboration within the office, 
throwing ideas out and uh, some of them were crazy and, and some of them worked. Uh, and I had the good fortune to meet uh, a lot of really creative people who I have uh, been fortunate enough to remain friends with for, for many years, obviously, including Jim. But you did leave the advertising business. I did that. What was it and, that uh, made you switch from advertising to real estate? Um, back in the mid-'80s, uh, our method of meeting with a client was to get on an airplane and fly around the country. And uh, I did a lot of that when I was working on the Burger King account. In fact, so much that I uh, frankly burned out on the travel. My wife at the time was, uh, we were considering starting a family and I thought I didn't want to be that dad that was constantly on airplanes flying from one city to the next. And so I felt like uh, real estate was a, was a natural fit given my upbringing and I moved over. Have you and regretted was, it? Um, no, never. Uh, I've not had a regret about doing that. That's not to say that I don't miss advertising. Uh, there were some really wonderful things about it. So you are currently a managing broker. What what does a managing broker manage? I'm um, referred to by our agents as the uh, deal doctor, which uh, suggests that when they have questions, they call me. We have uh, 475 real estate agents. Uh, when they find issues that are challenging, they will pick up the phone or text or email and, and say, you know, how do I handle this? So... I'm kind of the conduit between uh, our broker and our uh, agents and consumers if they have uh, issues. Well, Don, uh, you've been in this game for long enough that you went right through the disastrous downturn in the Michigan economy when real estate values plunged to next to nothing. How did you survive that? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nightmare. It was challenging, but it also made me think about my life and, and moving forward because that was about eight or nine years ago. And I had some decisions that I had to make about what I wanted to do before they put me uh, uh, in the ground. And one of those is, uh, you know, writing a book. Um, I, I definitely had some uh, reevaluating to do. So it was actually a sort of disaster that uh, propelled you into uh, life as an author. Yes. One of uh, the agents that I worked with at another company uh, came into my office once, one day, and he said, you used to be one of the uh, area's um, top producers in expired listings. And uh, I said, yeah. I, and he, I said, what, what's your question? He said, would you teach my team how you did that and I did and then I started to write a white paper on it for them and in the process of that I realized that our real estate industry had changed remarkably in the last 30 years and not everyone realized the impact of social media and the impact that it was going to have uh, so I broadened this white paper out until I had written a book it was called, You're Going to Sell Real Estate or What? The Gorilla Guide to Real Estate Today. And I thought, well, if I can do this, I can probably write that great American novel. It's all been pinging around in my brain for 30 years. 
uh, or more. And at the time, I didn't have a subject, but I knew I wanted to write one. So when do you have time to write? Um, on the weekends, I uh, will go out to a lovely little town along the coastline called Grand Haven or Saugatuck or any of those and look out over the ocean or the, the I'm sorry, Lake Michigan, but it looks like an ocean, and uh, get a nice uh, Bloody Mary in front of me, and then I uh, try to make the put sense together that makes sense. Well, I like Bloody Marys. Does that make me a writer? Um, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's your advice? Oh, God, i got to try that. Okay. I think that that explains that, that need to get away and actually finding something where you could uh, sit by the shores of Lake Michigan and get inspired. It sort of explains the nature of your first novel, which was The Beech Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You had a lot of access to Lake Michigan from there. Oh, yeah. And uh, how did that inspire you to write the story about The Beech Tree? Well, I was, uh, my family would uh, go down to the beach for uh, uh, Sunday breakfast on the beach. In the process, I was hanging out with my friends uh, at a cottage along Lake Michigan between Grand Haven and Holland. And about an eighth of a mile north of the cottage is Ramshackle Cottage back in 1972-ish. There was a tree. And it was known as the Beech Tree, B-E-E-C-H. And it was the place where everybody um, carved their initials in the tree. And on a bicycle ride about eight years ago, I went looking for the tree. Couldn't find the tree. So I called my buddy who uh, whose folks owned the cottage. And I said, where did the tree go? And he said, both of them went down the straight line winds of 1998. It was a very unusual storm we had here with 130 mile an hour winds. Um, and I just, I, I, all of a sudden I felt this, uh, pit in my stomach and I thought, whatever happened to the people mm. who carved their initials into that tree? Mm-hmm. What, and did we ever encounter one another and have this sort of deja vu moment, um, as if, you know, don't I know you from somewhere sort of thing? And I thought, wow, that would be a, a cool book. And so I sat down and started writing, and that's then that's what came out. So, uh, are you planning to continue your uh, two careers? Yeah, forever and ever. Um, well, first of all, um, I, I have three careers. There's the real estate thing, and then there's the writer thing, and then there's the bicycle thing. I think this is an old dog, new tricks sort of mentality that I had. I have to keep having goals. I have to set a new goal each year. Um, so last year, I set the goal at age 66 to ride 66 miles on Route 66. <laughs> and I did it on 6-6. And so, of course you did. Yeah, of course. And finally, the day came, and uh, my buddy and I uh, pulled up to a bar called the um, Route 66 Bar and Grill. And I'm driving a nice car with an Italian bicycle on the back. And there were a lot of bikes there, but they all said Harley Davidson on them. (laughs) And um, they looked at me in in a very odd way. And as we got out of the car, they said, what the heck are you doing here? And they didn't say heck. And I said, I heard that this was a biker bar. (laughs) (laughs) And they 
And they all laughed, and they said, come on over here. So we drank Hylum and the whole style and had hamburgers, and, and the next day I went on a bike ride. Um, what I didn't expect was to meet so many interesting people in that 66-mile ride that day. You know, it was just unexpected from this crazy bucket list ride. Well, let's um, take a look at uh, other people that you encounter that may be around our age. And uh, you tell them about what you're up to and the various things that you have done and accomplished. Uh, do they ever get that faraway look in their eyes and say to you they wish that they could do something like that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, someday I'm going to write a book. Uh -huh. I have, you know, I have someday. a book I want to write. Yes. Someday. So and what do you tell these people? Um, someday is today. Someday is today. And, and there's, a, there's a, a bit of a story there. Um, as my daughters were growing up, I had a refrigerator magnet on the refrigerator. Um, and it said, all of your dreams can come true if you have the courage to pursue them. Walt Disney, quote. And all through their lives, they saw this quote on the refrigerator. And now... They are living their lives. They are living their dreams. They're off and gone. And about eight years ago, they were off and pursuing their dreams. And I looked at that refrigerator magnet and I thought, well, I can take that down now. My job is done. <laughs> then I thought, well, maybe not. Maybe I need to look at that for myself, that it's time for me to get busy on making my own dreams come true. And I think that was a, that was a major um, influence in uh, some changes that I made at that time. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon. <laughs>